The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Monday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. As always, follow us at danproftshow.com, social media at Dan Proft Show, or just uh, at Dan Proft, both. And remember, uh, I post a lot of the source material as well as subsequently uh, break-up interviews of our various interviewees for your easy consumption and viewing. So that's why you want to follow me at those places. We begin with an eventful weekend, of course, the trajectory of the president testing positive for COVID-19, as we discussed on Friday, and then being admitted to Walter Reed Hospital, and then the periodic updates, the combination of his medical team plus the president himself taking to video. Why don't we go in order from Friday through Sunday, since there was a lot to cover. Uh, The one thing that was consistent, though, throughout is the president's remarks, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In all of those video messages, he uh, appeared in quite good spirits and quite healthy, even though this was a serious virus and, and he was symptomatic. So we're not minimizing it, but we are describing what we see with our own eyes. Uh, we're not supposed to uh, not believe our lying eyes as the left would have it. So again, uh, Trump starting out on Friday before being taken over to uh, Walter Reed. I want to thank everybody for the tremendous support. I'm going to Walter Reed Hospital. I think I'm doing very well. But we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well. I had heard from a reliable source, friend of mine at the White House on Friday, and I posted this, that um, the expectation was that, uh, look, we're going to, as a precautionary measure, take him to Walter Reed. His fever had increased. It wasn't spiking, but it had increased. And given his age and uh, the fact that he's overweight, I mean, let's just be honest, that uh, it just made sense to have him in a situation where he's being monitored. And so the decision to take him to Walter Reed with the expectation that he was going to have a couple of rough days, but that he should be fine on the other side. And, of course, the message on Sunday was he's doing well. President Trump then on Saturday, there was some communication breakdown, as it were, between uh, President Trump and, and his chief of staff, Mark Meadows. In terms of how serious was the condition of the president, Mark Meadows seemed to indicate on background to some D.C. press corps reporters that it was quite serious. So President Trump took to video again on Saturday to update his condition and thank the people who had assembled outside. I just want to be so thankful for all of the support I've seen, whether it's on television or reading about it. I most of all appreciate what's been said by the American people, by Almost a bipartisan consensus of American people. It's a beautiful thing to see. Almost a bipartisan consensus. Not quite. And we'll get to that. But uh, continuing with the president's remarks, he also talked about uh, the decision to leave the White House and go to Walter Reed. And it was based in a perspective, an attitude of just we got to tackle problems straight on. I was given that alternative. Stay in the White House. Lock yourself in. Don't ever leave. Don't even go to the Oval Office. Just stay upstairs and enjoy it. Don't see people, don't talk to people, and just be done with it. And I can't do that. I had to be out front. And this is America. This is the United States. This is the greatest country in the world. This is the most powerful country in the world. I can't be locked up in a room upstairs and totally safe and uh, just say, hey, whatever happens, happens. I can't do that. We have to confront problems. As a leader, you have to confront problems. And he was in good enough spirits on Saturday to have a little fun at his own expense and uh, also updating 
Melania's condition. And uh, we're both doing well. Melania is uh, really handling it very nicely. As you've probably read, she's slightly younger than me, just a little tiny bit. <laughs> and uh, therefore, just we know the disease, we know the situation with age versus uh, younger people. And uh, Melania is handling it statistically like it's supposed to be handled. All right. So then uh, that's Saturday. Then on Sunday, first, we got a briefing from Trump's medical team, starting with uh, Sean Donnelly. He just described the course of the illness, disclosed the administration of dexamethasone, the steroid, as part of the treatment. Over the course of his illness, the president has experienced two episodes of transient drops in his oxygen saturation. It is a determination of the team, based predominantly on the timeline from the initial diagnosis, that we initiate dexamethasone. I'd like to take this opportunity now, given some speculation over the course of the illness, uh, the last couple of days, update you on the course of his, his own illness. Thursday night into Friday morning when I left the bedside, the president was doing well, with only mild symptoms, and his oxygen was in the high 90s. Late Friday morning when I returned to the bedside, the president had a high fever, and his oxy oxygen saturation was transiently dipping below 94%. Given these two developments, I was concerned for possible rapid progression of the illness. I recommended the president we try some supplemental oxygen, see how he'd respond. He was fairly adamant that he didn't need it. He was not short of breath. He was tired, had the fever, and that was about it. And after about a minute, on only two liters, his saturation levels were back over, 40, over 95%. Stayed on that for about an hour, maybe, and it was off and gone. Later that day, by the time the team here was at the bedside, the president had been up out of bed, moving about the residence with only mild symptoms. Despite this, everyone agreed the best course of action was to move to Walter Reed for a more thorough evaluation and monitoring. So that helps provide the explanation for the oxygen treatment that was much discussed and uh, just what the threat level was in terms of how significant were the symptoms. Dr. Sean Dooley on the president's status as of yesterday. Regarding his clinical status, the patient uh, continues to improve. Uh, he has remained without fever uh, since Friday morning. His vital signs are stable. Uh, from a pulmonary standpoint, he remains on room air this morning uh, and is not complaining of shortness of breath or other significant respiratory symptoms. He's ambulating uh, himself, walking around the White House medical unit without uh, limitation or disability. All encouraging. So uh, Dr. Donnelly, Dr. Dooley, Dr. Dooley, Dr. Donnelly, now turn it over to Dr. Garibaldi. Dr. Garibaldi is the uh, physician who spoke on initiating remdesivir and then to dexamethasone, also the one who uh, suggested uh, there would be an assessment about whether or not the president could be released on Monday. Uh, the president yesterday evening completed his second dose of remdesivir. Uh, he's tolerated that infusion well. We've been monitoring for any potential side effects, uh, and he has had none that we can tell. His liver and kidney function have remained normal, um, and we continue uh, to plan to use a five-day course of remdesivir. In response to transient uh, low oxygen levels, as Dr. Conley has discussed, we did initiate dexamethasone therapy, and he received his first dose of that yesterday, and our plan is to continue that for the time being. Um, today, he feels well. He's been up and around. Our plan for today is to have him to eat and drink, uh, be up out of bed as much as possible to be mobile. And if he continues to look and, and feel as well as he does today, our hope is that we can plan for a discharge as early as tomorrow to the White House where he can continue his treatment course. So then after that briefing to the public that his medical team gave uh, later in the day, President Trump decided that he wanted to do a little thank you ride by, ride along almost, 
with uh, to to those who had assembled outside of Walter Reed, uh, wishing him well, and also sending a message to those around the country doing the same. Uh, there were Trump supporters who shut down Fifth Avenue in New York out of respect for the president and well wishes to him. We're getting great reports from the doctors. This is an incredible hospital, Walter Reed. The work they do is just absolutely amazing, and I want to thank them all, the nurses, the doctors, everybody here. I've also gotten to meet some of the soldiers and the first responders and what a group. I also think we're going to pay a little surprise to some of the great patriots that we have out on the street. And they've been out there for a long time and they've got Trump flags and they love our country. So I'm not telling anybody but you, but I'm about to make a little surprise visit. And that's what he did. And then, of course, the uh, recriminations ensued. One doctor, Walter Reed, James Phillips, slamming uh, President Trump on Twitter, saying that President SUV not only bulletproof, but hermetically sealed against chemical attack. The risk of COVID-19 transmission inside is as high as it gets outside of medical procedures. The irresponsibility is astounding. My thoughts are with the Secret Service for the role they're forced to play, except uh, he was wrong. Secret Service wasn't forced to play that role. They volunteered to. And there is a glass or probably bulletproof glass partition between the president and Secret Service in addition to the masks and so on and so forth. It's just ridiculous. And oh, by the way, that's a uh, much less uh, a diabolical duty than having to be part of Joe Biden's Secret Service detail. And if you're a female Secret Service agent, both female and everybody else, having to watch Joe Biden swim in the raw as is his want when he has a female assigned to his Secret Service detail, uh, allegedly. Speaking of Joe Biden, uh, so ridiculous and irresponsible was Joe Biden's statement on Friday that Trump had referred to COVID as a hoax, that even the Associated Press felt the need to correct Joe Biden. Of course, President Trump never referred to COVID as a hoax. Uh, He is somebody who advocated shutting down the economy, something he didn't want to do. He did that because he thought it was a hoax. Clearly not. Just ridiculous and so unbelievably disingenuous. Joe Biden would say such a thing. People should take that into consideration when making their assessments about their vote in the next uh, three weeks leading up to November 3rd. Coming up, we'll continue this conversation. Fold in Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn to talk about uh, the Dem Socialists in the Senate, their effort to use COVID to derail the Amy Comey confirmation hearing. Not going to happen. And then after that, we'll be talking to Dr. Roger Klein former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic about all things COVID related as well. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. End of last week, the uh, traditional pre-election Al Smith dinner. This was uh, done virtually. Both President Trump, Vice President Biden participated, but they just recorded messages that were delivered as part of this virtual dinner that Cardinal Dole and Al Smith Society puts on. And uh, here was a Joe Biden talking about his Catholic faith. And throughout my life in public service, I've been guided by the tenets of Catholic social doctrine. Really? That cuts across all confessional faiths. What you do to the least among us, you do unto me. We have an obligation to one another. We cannot serve ourselves at the expense of others. We have a responsibility to future generations. And that's the charge before us today. Oh, you've been guided in your public life by Catholic social doctrine. Vice President Biden, would you say the dogma lives loudly within you? 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not supposed to allow your faith to inform your understanding of anything, I thought. Now, the unfortunately, the dogma does not live loudly within him, but that's secondary to the suggestion that he says it does. President Trump took the occasion to uh, tout some of his accomplishments in his message for the Al Smith dinner, including the nomination of one Amy Coney Barrett. We will not stand for any attacks against Judge Barrett's faith. Anti-Catholic bigotry has absolutely no place in the United States of America. It predominates in the Democrat Party, and we must do something immediately about it, like a Republican win. And let's make it a really big one. Well, um, one way to avoid the uh, anti-Catholic bigotry is to push off the confirmation hearing. That's what Senate Democrat Socialists want to do now, because as uh, Dianne Feinstein put it in a statement she issued on Friday, the uh, hearing schedule is premature before the White House puts in place a contact tracing plan to prevent further spread of the disease. The Senate Democrats also claiming there's a bipartisan agreement that a virtual confirmation hearing for a lifetime appointment to the federal bench is not an acceptable substitute, even though they have done virtual hearings, confirmation hearings for lifetime appointments to the federal benches for lower courts. Hmm. So that precedent seems to be out the window. Uh, Chuck Schumer was on MSNBC end of last week reminding us exactly what he would do as Senate Majority Leader with respect to the courts and all the other threats that have been made. Believe me, on D.C. and Puerto Rico, particularly if Puerto Rico votes for it, D.C. already has voted for it and wants it. I'd love to make them states. Okay. And as for the filibuster, I didn't, I'm not busting my, my chops to become majority leader, to do very little or nothing. We are going to get a whole lot done. And as I've said, everything, everything is on the table. Uh, including packing the courts. By the way, he used busting my chops in the wrong context. Somebody busts your chops. You bust your hump. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn. She is also a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator Blackburn, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. It's good to join you. Uh, well, uh, now, Senator Dianne Feinstein, dogma lives loudly within her, so she says, of Amy Coney Barrett. She says uh, uh, it's too soon. It's premature to schedule confirmation hearings. Let's just hold off and uh, understand the situation with uh, COVID infections in the White House. And, uh, you know, we'll get back. We'll, we'll come back around to that confirmation hearing. What say Senate Republicans? Senate Republicans say the hearings are going to start on October 12th. That will be the day we do opening statements. We will have questioning rounds on the 13th and 14th. We will hear from outside groups on the 15th. We will take the vote and move her from committee. And the last week of October, she will be on the floor for a confirmation vote and be confirmed to the court. And what about uh, what President Trump mentioned in that message to the uh, Al Smith dinner and what's been talked about a lot because uh, she has been under attack from this direction, which is people that are attacking Amy Coney Barrett for her Catholic faith and suggesting that she's going to be some sort of theocrat uh, in spite of what she's actually been on the Seventh Circuit? Well, what we have to realize there is they're trying to make a litmus test for getting on the bench. And the litmus test is your religion or your faith. And Judge Barrett is a woman of faith. And her religion has been important to the life of her family as well as to to her personally. And they this is something that is so incredibly unseemly, not even to mention Article 6, 
but just think of what they're doing. They're trying to say if you're a woman of faith, that's a disqualifier. In essence, by their actions, you could distill this down to saying they want to have uh, atheists or secularists on the court, but not an individual of faith. Right. And and so, I mean, this seems to me a, a, a real um, uh, uh, illuminating moment for the American people. If indeed the Democrats go down this road during the confirmation hearing, which it seems like they can't help themselves but do so. Well, if they do that, it is completely out of order. And I think that you would see Chairman Graham rule them out of order. Uh, Senator Feinstein's comments on the dogma uh, Senator Durbin's comments about orthodoxy, uh, Senator Harris's uh, comments uh, about Knights of Columbus. Uh, we know that Judge Barrett is deeply involved with her faith. She has spoken to the fact that you don't make your rulings on faith, you make your rulings on the Constitution and the law, and that she is a person who is highly regarded by those on both the left and the right, colleagues, uh, other jurists, and she is eminently well qualified to take this seat on the bench. What do you uh, say to those who have suggested that uh, the adoptions, she and her husband adopting two children from Haiti, that those adoptions deserve more scrutiny to make sure those adoptions were all done on the up and up? That is absolutely despicable. The uh, Chicago Tribune editorial board editor uh, she, uh, Kristen McQuarrie is her name. She's a, a woman. She tweeted out about Amy Coney Barrett. You know, the, the, the here's the, the posture of the left, basically. We, we need women in more places of authority, except if they're conservative. And I, I think, uh, I think a, a, a lot of women and men of good faith who may not even like President Trump may not be Republicans. I, I think they see through that. I mean, it's just so patently obvious. Well, it is blatantly unfair. And it is incredibly disrespectful to someone who is highly accomplished, as is Judge Barrett. And for the left to continue to exercise bias, prejudice, and preferencing against women who are on the right, who are conservative, is just really unseemly. You know what's so interesting to me? They seek to have diversity except when it comes to diversity of viewpoint, and the diverse viewpoint would be coming to them from the right. Uh, with, uh, within your caucus, uh, the um, two females who expressed some, uh, some opposition to a hearing before Election Day, Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski, do you expect any Republican senator to uh, not vote to confirm Amy Coney Barrett? I think everyone will vote to confirm Judge Barrett. And we look forward to having that vote. We look forward to moving, uh, moving her um, to the floor and then confirming her and seeing her take her seat on the Supreme Court. She will be the first working mom of school-age children to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. Senator Marsha Blackburn, U.S. Senator from Tennessee. Senator Blackburn, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Thank you. podcast of the show at
danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Shutdown artist, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, got shut down by the state Supreme Court. In a Friday opinion, the Michigan Supreme Court quoting Montesquieu, when the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or in the same body of magistrates, there can be no liberty. And that's exactly what she did, operating under the state's Emergency Management Act, which allows the governor to declare disaster, but for only 28 days until and unless a longer period is approved by the legislature. Uh, Republicans in Michigan were in no mood to approve that. The uh, shall issue declaration if the governor finds an emergency has occurred. The argument that she made to the court explaining that she had no choice but to redeclare state of emergency. But Michigan Supreme Court justice writing a for a unanimous court on this point to allow such a redeclaration would effectively render the 28 day limitation a nullity. In other words, you can't just forever re-up without enlisting the legislature and saying, well, I'm just doing it 28 days at a time. So that's consistent with the law that allows me to only do it for 28 days without legislative approval. That clearly would nullify the law. So there's other states that uh, are in a similar situation with similarly inclined governors that may be using this as a model to seek redress from the courts as well. We'll see. Uh, And then there's uh, this piece from um, three academics in National Review, nationalreview.com, a microbiologist and a couple of statisticians, looking at the stats now that we have a great body of statistics to review. Stats hold a surprise. Lockdowns may have had little effect on COVID-19 spread. To judge from the evidence, the answer is clear, they write. Mandated lockdowns had little effect on the spread of the coronavirus. The charts below in this piece, which I'll tweet out at Dan Proft, show the daily case curves to the United States as a whole and for 13 U.S. states. As in almost every country, we consistently see a steep climb as the virus spreads, followed by a transition to a flatter curve. At some point, the curves always slope downward, though it wasn't obvious for all states until the summer. The lockdowns can't be the cause of these transitions. In the first place, the transition happened even in places without lockdown orders. See Iowa and Arkansas, for example. And where there were lockdowns, the transitions tended to occur well before the lockdowns could have had any serious effect. The only possible exceptions, California, which on March 19th became the first state to officially lock down in Connecticut four days later. And they have the data to back up that summary. Oh, by the way, just comparing and contrasting consistent with both of these articles, Michigan and Sweden have roughly the same population. Michigan had draconian Whitmer style lockdown orders. Remember that you couldn't buy seeds for your garden, but you could buy lottery tickets and so on and so forth. And uh, Sweden, as we know, very light touch, no lockdown orders, no mask requirements. Same size population. Sweden has 20 percent fewer deaths than Michigan. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, and former advisor to the full alphabet soup of federal public health agencies, FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. So what about that? Uh, Before we get into the particulars of the Trump case and all the politics surrounding that, just what about the evidence that's in so far as to whether lockdown policies had a marginally beneficial effect as compared to non-lockdown policies? So I think this has been um, evident to people who have been following the data. I mean, I haven't done a, a rigorous analysis. I've been following it and watching it. We've talked about it before. I'm not, you know, obviously others have done the same. And there doesn't seem to be a correlation between the imposition of lockdowns and how well uh, state performance that those states that were most stringent in their restrictions have both the, the most or highest numbers of deaths 
per million, and they have much higher unemployment. So I think as a policy matter, those are lockdowns seem to be uh, uh, an ill-conceived policy. Harvard medical professor uh, Martin Kaldorf joined uh, me last week and thinking about what we should be doing going forward. He basically said Florida is what we should be doing going forward. Listen to him. I'm going to get your reaction. Yeah, I think Florida is taking the right approach, which is to open the society for uh, open all the schools for in-person teaching and uh, universities and opening restaurants and so for uh, the majority of the population. At the same time, increasing the efforts to protect the elderly. So Kaldorf uh, also one caveat there saying, you know, teachers over the age of 60, whether in K through 12 or college, should be uh, not in the classroom. That That's one precautionary measure that should be taken. But otherwise, uh, you heard what he said. Yeah, I agree with that. We've been saying that all along. I think we we need to learn to live with the virus. It's an it's called a pandemic. It's called an epidemic because we don't have an ability to contain it, and life can't can't stop. What we can do is protect vulnerable people. I, I think that that that's clear, particularly in institutionalized settings like nursing homes, where we have control over who comes in, who comes out, and we have new, rapid, exciting testing that can detect outbreaks early and put an end to them by separating people. When we come back with Dr. Roger Klein, former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, I want to talk about uh, what the president's medical team asked of Regeneron and the FDA and whether the emergency use authorization the president got should be available to all COVID-infected as needed. More right after this. You've got your passion, you've got your pride. Satisfied. Dream on, but don't imagine they'll all come true. Ooh, when will you realize? in a way. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Dr. Roger Klein, former head of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic and consultant to the FDA and CDC. And uh, I want to get to uh, something uh, Tyler Cohn wrote about over at his blog, Marginal Revolution, about um, the treatment for President Trump. Uh, Regeneron's chief executive, Dr. Leonard Schleifer, said on Friday that Trump's medical staff reached out to the company for permission to use their monoclonal antibody as part of a treatment and that it was cleared for emergency use through the FDA for, you know, compassionate use. Cohen says there's such cacophony when Trump pushes the FDA to speed vaccine approval, yet when he actually gets a promising treatment through the process prematurely, only for himself, not a single person is yelping, not even his worst enemies and his most vicious opponents. Should he be pushing for FDA green lighting monoclonal antibodies as a treatment? What he should be doing is pushing for the patient's right to try, which is what he's doing. So, and he, he implemented right to try. In other words, patients can have access to promising drugs early if a company's uh, willing to do so. And, and that was something that the president pushed through. I think regulators uh, strike a balance and they're, they're looking at safety and they're looking at efficacy and in emergency uses, you don't have to have full proof of safety and efficacy. What you want to have is a balance, and the law says they may be effective. I think he's right to try to nudge uh, the policy direction in a direction of 
greater liberality. It's, he's not. It, these are fine. These are kind of nuances. They're not absolutes. But regulators tend to be very cautious and conservative. And I and one of the reasons that the political branches control the regulatory agencies is to make them responsive to public demand. Yeah, and these artificial antibodies, though. I mean, just in terms of the therapeutics that are out there, as people are trying to understand. What's what's happening? Hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, dexamethasone. These artificial antibodies from Regeneron, for example, Professor Peter Horby at uh, Oxford said, look, they've been around for quite a while. They've been extensively used in inflammatory conditions and cancers. They're pretty safe and well understood. So the technology is uh, something that I think we have confidence in. So why wouldn't it be available to people not named Trump? Well, I, I think it, it is. I mean, if the company's willing to do it. But I, I you know, I can't sit from here and, and judge FDA's uh, response. They looked at 275 people with this medicine. They uh, appear to have, particularly in people who don't want an immune response, which presumably are those who, who appear to do worse and maybe would implicate some of those people who have, have bad outcomes. It appeared to shorten the uh, length of symptoms substantially in those patients who didn't have antibodies. And it looks like it brings down the amount of virus in the blood substantially in these 275 people. Now, I, you know, without looking at the data in a more granular way, I don't make a comment, but I think we, again, my preference is to err on the side of safety. How would you assess the communication, the public communication? I know this is, you know, not exactly their forte. This is not their medical professionals. They're not uh, PR people. But when you have a high profile client in this context, like the president of the United States, being transparent in communicating his condition is an important piece of it to the extent that uh, he's not communicating himself. And uh, do you think that uh, the, uh, the, 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 the medical team for President Trump has been effective in terms of communicating to the public? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, this is an area where the media is, so, they're watching second to second. And I got to tell you, it's really, you know, it's so harmful. Mm. I, these are doctors. They're not media spokespeople. They're not used to doing this. And they've got a patient who's high profile. Normally, as a physician, you can't say a word about a, a, a patient. There's a, there are laws against it. And, and so you're putting people out in front and they, you know, they have to be extremely cautious and they're not used to doing it. I think they're doing a great job. The president himself is, has come out and he's tweeting, he's putting on, putting out videos and we're getting the information that the patient wants to provide. They're, the doctors are doing a great job. I mean, I can't, this isn't their job to be communicating with the media. How so I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I get it. And how um, how do you react to the argument that uh, Trump being infected specifically is uh, science combined with karma because he he was he was reckless. That's the only way he could have gotten it. It's reckless for doing these campaign events and for uh, not wearing masks as often as some people say he should and so forth. I, th I think it's it's horrible to say that it's wrong. Uh, first of all, he has extensive testing protocols in place. Uh, what it suggests and what everybody should understand is what CDC said in early March. Most people are going to get it. You have to understand it's a very contagious respiratory virus. There's little we can do about it. We can't sit and stop life. It, it isn't going to go away that way. Masks aren't going to do anything. He, this, this is a... This is a um, uh, you know, at least, let's put it this way. We don't have data that masks are going to are going to stop the spread of this virus. And there is no reason to believe at all 
that it could stop this epidemic. It's called an epidemic. It's called a pandemic because we can't contain it. And I think the president did the right thing in terms of going out and campaigning. You know, people make choices. If you want to go into a crowd, you're risking getting infected. Most people will not get sick from this disease. Most people will not suffer serious consequences. However, some will, and particularly if you're at high risk. And my, I would urge those who are at high risk to stay away. He, the president made a choice. It was his choice to make. I do not believe for, I don't, we don't know how he got it, but, but I don't think, when I said masks won't do anything, I'm particularly talking about in his ambit where everybody around him is tested. You know, it's kind of hard to, you can't live your entire life with a mask on. So, so I think, you know, I think that, uh, and, 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 you know, we don't, we don't have data again that it would do anything, you know, that would really stop the spread. I think what this should do and what people should take away from this is this is a highly contagious uh, virus that even though, e- even with all the precautions and all the testing and everything that the president has been doing, he could not, they could not shield him from it. Mm-hmm. It's an important lesson because people need to understand that these lockdowns and these extreme measures that go ahead and they destroy people's economic lives, they, they really aren't, in the end, they're not going to work. And they're not going to, pre- they're not going to, pre- what, what will, what will potentially save lives and stop this epidemic, first of all, is, as we said earlier, protecting people in nursing homes. And second is a vaccine. And, and the, the, you know, this uh, Regeneron drug, which, which operates through antibodies uh, to the spike protein, two different antibodies, this study provides support for the, the idea that a vaccine could be helpful, the vaccines directed toward that same spike protein. He is Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, and uh, I'm going to keep uh, citing Jason Whitlock's columns as long as he keeps writing great ones, and he's done it again. Jason Whitlock over at Outkick.com. I skipped most of Game 1 of the NBA Finals. I can't take it anymore. The kneeling, Black Lives Matter splashed across the court, the finger-wagging, self-righteous commercials, the vote t-shirts, the silly slogans on the back of jerseys. But more than any of it, it's the LeBron James worship that made me check out. Started in the last five minutes of the Western Conference Finals. I turned off my TV. I tried to re-engage Wednesday evening. LeBron James versus the Heat is interesting. Pat Riley's system versus James and Anthony Davis. And then one player, Heat Reserve Myers Leonard, stood for the national anthem. One player had the balls to disagree with the groupthink. One player, a player unlikely to take the court. He goes on to say, uh, basketball is my first love. My dad used to take me and my brother to the Indianapolis Fairgrounds to see the Pacers playing the, the, the uh, ABA. We sat up in the, high up in the cheap seats. By my teen years, I was a full-blown Pacers nut job. I stayed up late and listened to games on the radio. LeBron James is destroying my love for the game. <laughs> James, Nike, China have dragged the NBA into a racial propaganda war with the United States as the opposition. I feel like I'm being forced to choose between love of country and love of basketball. That's not a hard choice for me. I choose America. I can survive without the NBA 
the NBA apparently can't survive without pleasing communist-run China. I got to tell you, I mean, that really speaks to me. Conversations I've had with people, too, is that feeling that Whitlock describes of having to choose between the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NFL and uh, your country, and it's an easy choice. Uh, You know, my team, the White Sox, and the Major League Baseball playoffs uh, got eliminated by the A's last week. But I got to tell you, I've watched a little bit of game one just out of, like, irresistible uh, force um, and to watch how Lucas Giolito performed. And then I just, I don't know, without the fans, I can't really get into it. It's 60-game season. It's all so silly. The self-righteousness and the virtue signaling, uh, totally agree with what Whitlock is describing. And, um, and I mean, and, and uh, of course, the NBA is unwatchable. It's unwatchable as a basketball product. Forget even the the Riley system versus James and Anthony Davis. I, I just can't watch it. But then James on top of it is just insufferable. I mean, to watch it, and, and frankly, to watch the NFL, Bears haven't been able to get into that. Steelers undefeated haven't been able to get into that. To watch it is basically to say it's okay for you to lecture me and call me a racist, and I'm supposed to just sit back and take it. No. I mean, and, and did you see the uh, the, same, the 49ers-Eagles game yesterday with uh, Collinsworth and Al Michaels all masked up? And <laughs> Collinsworth sort of took a veiled shot at the— Santa Clara County, which uh, imposed uh, this uh, mask requirement on the broadcasters in the booth. I'm Al Michaels, and Chris Collins said, I don't know who I am, essentially, with this mask on. He uh, goes on, does Whitlock say, I, I can't take it right now. It's hard to watch NBA games. I watched uh, the bubble with the audio turned low, so it's easy for me to ignore the self-righteous commercials and the, worships, uh, the worship of James, George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Breonna Taylor. I don't dislike James or Floyd, Blake, and Taylor, I just don't believe in treating them like they're Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, or Medgar Evers. I hope the NFL doesn't put me in a similar position as the NBA. Well, Jason, as he well knows, following this, they certainly started the season by doing so, and they lost me when they did. This is Dan. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Dan Proft Show, at Dan Proft Show on social media. And danproftshow.com is the website, podcasts, and other value-added content. Uh, there's a new uh, film out that uh, you should see. Uh, I saw it because I'm me and I got a screener. Uh, but it's uh, co-produced by Ben Watson, Super Bowl winning tight end with the New England Patriots. Uh, had a great professional career in the NFL. He uh, co-executive produced Divided Hearts of America with his wife. And it features a, a great compilation of interviews from across the spectrum on the issue of the sanctity of human life. Uh, importantly, he uh, was able to get two New York state legislators who are pro-abortion to sit down with him and explain their views, including that uh, ghastly legislation, as I describe it, that New York uh, state passed that would essentially legalize infanticide. And that's not how they characterize it. It's how I characterize it, because my characterization is accurate. Here's the trailer for Divided Hearts of America. When does a person get rights? When does a person get rights? When a person is a person. When is a like person a person? And that's the thing. When a, when a child is born, then the child is a child. 
If we look at the history of abortion laws, it's always been predicated on when a human's life begins. There is no personhood under law for fetuses. We don't have that in this country. The state legislature has passed the Reproductive Health Act. They say that this law has made Illinois the abortion capital of the Midwest. This is one of the worst possible choices that any woman and her family has to make. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. There's nothing more common sense than giving a child born the right to continue. People were saying, wait a minute, do they really kill babies? I said, hey, it's called infanticide. It's important that as African Americans that we truly understand the history of abortion. In New York City, the home of Planned Parenthood, for decades more black babies have been aborted than born alive. For decades. Abortion is targeting black America. That's not an accident. That's genocide. The uh, nice thing that the film does, in addition to get those who don't share the pro-life position so you can hear the viewpoint side by side, is it sort of uh, segments the topic areas in a way that's easy to follow. You start with the law, constitutional law, as well as state law and the arguments that are uh, advanced by both sides. Then you go into the science and you end with a larger discussion about culture, including race. It's very good, very comprehensive, and we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Ben Watson, co-executive producer of Divided Hearts of America, which is now streaming on Salem Now, SalemNow.com. So do check it out. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. How you doing? Good. Uh, I really enjoyed the film. Uh, a lot of great interviews. And, and as I said, let me start where uh, you were able to accomplish something that often uh, people who do films like this are not able to, which is to get people with the opposing viewpoint to sit down and have a conversation so you can present these views side by side for people to make their own assessments. And uh, how uh, those two New York state legislators you spoke with, you think, help to, um, you know, advance the conversation? Well, I think it's imperative that when we have this conversation, we have a conversation. Much of what we have recently, and I think even ramping up so much in the last couple of years, has been a lot of vitriol, a lot of emotion. A lot of things, you know, this should be an emotional topic when we're talking about life and death. But within that, we need to ask the question why. And we need to understand that there is a humanity even in people that we vehemently disagree with. And so the purpose and the hope was even to have more people on the other side. But a lot of times they don't want to speak about this issue. But but I was I was really happy to have uh, Gustavo Rivera and, and Senator Kruger, who was actually the co-sponsor of the Reproductive Health Act in, in New York, just explain what their motives were, how they view this issue. Maybe some of the things that we don't hear when we are in our kind of pro-life silos, I think it's important that we're able to hear that other side so that we can better address and better advocate for what we believe to be true. It it was important because it helps you zero in on the argument that's being advanced from the uh, pro-abortion perspective, which is this whole notion of personhood. When does a baby become a person or what they would say, when does a fetus become a person? Mm-hmm. And so is it, I, I also appreciated you interviewed Steve Jacobs, who uh, works at Illinois Right to Life. Yeah. He did this uh, great paper. He's a Ph.D. University of Chicago. He's an intellectual. He did this paper that was really underreported, not surprisingly, surveying mm-hmm. thousands of biologists from around the world. Fifty three hundred plus biologists, 96 percent affirmed a human's life begins at fertilization just as a matter of science, despite the fact that 89 percent of those same biologists identified as liberal. So Hmm. I'm pro-choice. 
But as a matter of science, I have to say, most of them, say, overwhelming majority said that, yes, life begins at fertilization. That seems like a key point. It was a key point. And Stephen Jacobs, he was, you know, sitting here talking to that guy. You mentioned the fact he's a Ph.D., he's an intellectual, very, very smart gentleman. Um, I didn't even know him. I'm sitting in Chicago in the in the hotel room thinking, OK, we're interviewing some people in Chicago. I know there's somebody else here in this city that I need to talk to. So I'm just Googling, literally Googling abortion Chicago and his name pops up. And we somehow track him down, and he's willing to tell us about this study. What also happened with the study is the university tried to discredit him. They took away the people who were kind of uh, monitoring and helping him get his Ph.D. Um, He went through a whole lot. But just hearing these biologists say, yes, life begins here, yet we don't think it deserves protection, that's the root of the issue. This idea of personhood is at the very crux of this entire issue of abortion. Uh, another area you uh, pick up on, which is a sensitive area, but you, you tackle it straight away, I think, in a very intelligent way because you because of your perspective, but also because you get, uh, you know, Senator Tim Scott to weigh in. You get this filmmaker to weigh in who who had a personal story to share and the issue of race and abortion and the fact that so many planned por- Planned Parenthood abortion mills are in majority minority neighborhoods and whether or not there's a real a real point to try to reduce the black population in this country that that's got to be something that's addressed. You know, we couldn't talk about this issue, um, you know, without speaking about that. So much has been made, you know, the fact that black Americans make up about 13 percent of of you know, the United States population, but anywhere between, you know, 30, 35 percent of, of the abortions. Is that by accident? Is that simply because um, black mothers and fathers care any less about their children? Uh, we know the latter is not the case. And when we look at the history of abortion, we look at the idea of eugenics, which is not necessarily all about race, but there is a huge racial component when we talk about eugenics, mm-hmm. um, as well as things like disabilities. Uh, we had to, 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 to address that. And as you mentioned, um, you know, Planned Parenthood facilities, abortion facilities are largely in um, within walking distance, many of them, um, of minority neighborhoods. But also, you know, expounding upon the fact that there are a lot of factors that lead women to make to make these choices. And a lot of these factors do have racial undertones. You know, when we talk about housing or we talk about economics and we talk about um, racial uh, residential segregation and and all these sorts of um, maternal mortality rates, wealth gap, all these things that, that, that we talk about outside of the abortion realm that have um, racial um, components to them, they contribute. And so what was interesting was finding out that, you know, this is a huge tangled web well, yes, there is abortion, there's racism in the abortion history, but there's also racism in society in general that contributes to these disparities and these outlandish numbers that we see when it comes to the black community. Why was this uh, film so important for you and your wife to uh, co-produce? Well, it's our first foray into film, and we picked a great topic, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, picked a, we picked an easy one. Yeah. Um, you know, Kirsten and I, um, we, we love people. Um, we believe people are made in the image of God, all of them from conception until... Uh, death, um, no matter where they're from, no matter what uh, their ethnicity is. Uh, we've supported pregnancy clinics uh, in various ways over the last several years, um, and, and we felt that right now, um, especially after after seeing what happened in New York a couple of years ago and, and really just seeing um, how this issue is talked about um, you know, or not talked about in certain circles, uh, this is uh, one of the civil rights issues of our day, if not the civil rights issue of our day. And so this is something that strikes at the very heart of the tenets of America, of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Um, and it's important that we 
um, went on this journey to discover, but also to provide information for those who maybe don't know that this is such a big deal when we're talking about million, 60 million children that have, have died over the last 50 years. And so, especially during this time, um, especially as, as um, you know, both sides ramp up about the Supreme Court, you know, there's so much that's going on. But as, as people who care about life, um, this is an important issue, life in the womb, but also life outside of it. Well, uh, you and your wife did a great job. It's a, it's a great film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was uh, very thoughtful, very illuminating, great primer for people that haven't delved too deeply into the, uh, the facets of the issue. Uh, he is Ben Watson, Super Bowl-winning tight end with the New England Patriots. You may remember the Ravens as well. Co-executive producer of Divided Hearts of America, which is now streaming on Salem Now, SalemNow.com. Do check it out. Ben Watson, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with the film. Thank you so much. God bless. Take care. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Switching gears to talk a little bit about uh, matters geopolitical. We're going to be joined by our friend Jim Carafano, but i got to get this... uh, I got to subscribe to this guy's newsletter. I've re- I've uh, read excerpts from his newsletter before. This guy named Joel Ross from Citadel Realty Advisors, and um, he's got a, a good handle. I mean, he's obviously he's looking through at things through an economic prism, but he's got a good handle on geopolitics, right? As well, we've I've uh, mentioned him before in context of energy policy on some of the data that he's provided on uh, what's happening with, for example, the construction of. Uh, coal plants the world over, as well as uh, in the West, where people talk about this being a global issue. And, for example, China not exactly being on board with the the grand climate change plans of the apocalyptic left in this country. And so speaking of China, he, uh, Joel Ross, did went through Biden's plan, economic plan, that was in part put together by Moody's. So when Joe Biden said Moody's analytics has reviewed it and sanctions his plan, well, Moody's helped put it together because they're leftists over at Moody's. He uh, went through the full Moody's report and analysis on China. He'll rejoin the WTO, World Trade Organization, and deal with China through more of the same dialogue through WTO that was used before Trump. That failed for many years. There's no reason to think it will succeed now. He will also join the TPP and also talk to China through the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership thinking now they will change their policies, even though he failed to get anything accomplished when he was VP and in Beijing. No more confronting China directly. Biden assumes China will change its ways through conversation by these organizations, diplomatic discussions with them. That was a totally failed strategy until Trump changed the game. The argument is that Trump accomplished little with a phase one deal, and so he failed. They ignore that the virus got in the way. They also ignore that Trump is now confronting China in the South China Sea and shutting down spy operations on campuses and in corporations and cutting off access to U.S. tech. Don't forget that while Biden was in Beijing holding talks, China gave Hunter Biden $1.5 billion for his make-believe private equity fund. Plus, he received millions more from other others in China for unexplained reasons. One more topic, uh, that being immigration. He will, uh, quote-unquote, normalize immigration. This is, again, Biden's plans, and there's a geopolitical and national security component to both of these. Specifically stated in the plan, grant citizenship immediately to DACA people, 
and reopen the border to allow in migrants and asylum seekers from Latin America or anywhere. Back to before the wall policy. Assumption is the economy needs immigrants to grow fully, so let them all in. Ignore that these are unskilled people and kids, MS-13 criminals. They go on welfare, which will be made available to them easily and immediately. Adds little to the U.S. economy other than more mouths to feed. Pass, quote-unquote, sweeping new immigration laws. Translation, open borders, shut down ICE, letting in hundreds of thousands to add low-wage competition to U.S. citizens. That is the analysis of Joel Ross, Citadel Realty Advisors. But as I said, it implicates national security issues, and that's where Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano comes in, who joins us now. Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. So what about uh, what Joel Ross has to say about Biden's plan on China, his characterization of it? But the if if we go back to how previous administrations were dealing with China through these international organizations, as described, is that a really a step back to essentially a red cape to the Chinese communists? Let's start with the international organizations where that where that assessment completely misses the boat. OK. You know, the, maybe in the 1990s, international organizations where were, we all got together to kind of create norms and everything else, but this is not the 1990s. China has a strategy for organizations which is primarily designed to ensure that Chinese interests are advanced and protected. So the notion of going to these organizations, and that is a neutral platform, that's ridiculous. That China's goal is not to see these organizations be a neutral platform. China wants to see them used to protect China's interest. So I think essentially what you're doing would be essentially enabling Chinese foreign policy. That makes no sense. Well, well, that's that. Yeah, no, that's Joel Ross's analysis. You're say, saying the Biden plan makes no sense. And, and the WHO is a good example of what you're talking about. Well, what I'm saying is trying to use international organizations as a neutral ground to try to influence the behavior of China is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. This would be like having the bank robber come in and help you count the money in the bank. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, the the you know a return to this discussion that has been shelved for a while because of all the other pressing issues? But uh, border security, I mean that that persists as an issue because there are very different visions on what border security means, and and uh, there is a, a real uh, fervor within Democrat Party ranks to do things like shut down ICE and move towards open borders policies. Yeah, I, I would just say, look, at a time of you know, global health concerns like a pandemic, um, eight, nine percent unemployment uh, and and a, a really serious war on on drugs um, and and a time when the last thing Mexico wants is open borders, because many of these migrants are coming from Central America and they're, and they're coming into Mexico and they're a problem for Mexico as well. So this would not only be devastatingly bad for the United States, it would actually be bad for Canada and Mexico as well. So I, I, it's not a policy that, that, you know, it's something that may have sounded good like eight years ago when we didn't see all these problems clearly manifest themselves right in front of us. But in, today it would make no sense. Give us your general assessment here 30 days out from an election of how principled realism, sort of the principled realism, the philosophy of the Trump administration in terms of foreign policy, what it has done to our relationships with our allies, what it has done to 
our relationships in terms of trying to quell or box in our our enemies uh you know what's the uh, what's the grade that you give it well yeah i mean that's pretty easy i mean first of all i i love to talk about the allies one because one of the criticisms is, is the other administration doesn't respect allies right. and and the reality is that you just you know just run the table asia pacific all the key allies the people we need to, to push back on china india australia japan stronger the Middle East, I mean, that speaks for itself. I mean, the United States has realigned Arab nations and better aligned with our interests, much more stable region, better. He's actually more engaged in Africa than the last administration was. He is absolutely more engaged in Latin America, better relationship with Mexico, Central America, Brazil, all the key countries. So it's, it's difficult to walk around the world and find a place where alliances aren't really strong. Even Europe, which is often brought up as the, uh, the Europeans hate us, is Nordic countries stronger, Baltic countries stronger, Central Europeans stronger, Southern Europeans stronger. The only place where the United States has issues, um, and Great Britain, of course, is, is alliances stronger than ever, is kind of old Europe. Okay, Germany, France, and all the little tiny countries stuck in between. And to be honest, many of their issues are really not with Trump. Their issues that they have even within themselves, and Trump's just an excuse for them. So from the alliance standpoint, obviously things are better. I think from the adversarial standpoint, look, North Korea has never been quieter. Russia is largely checkmated. Um, Iran's in terrible, horrible shape. And China's been challenged like it, it's never been challenged in the last three decades. So I, I don't know how you look at foreign policy. And again, it's not a political comment because I'm a political guy. But if you're asking me, how do you look at foreign policy and say, we're not better off than we were four years ago. I, I, I mean, you have to admit that because it, it's, it's just factually true. When we come back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Heritage Foundation, I uh, want to play a compilation of James Comey testimony highlights, testimonial highlights from last week, and to get Jim's response, Carafano, that is, to uh, what Comey testified to, or more to the point, what he didn't testify to last week, right after this. We can dance. We can dance, everybody's taking the chance Save the dance, oh, let's save the dance Yes, save the dance Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com Back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Heritage Foundation, and let's hear a compilation of answers from Jim Comey's uh, testimony before the Senate committee uh, on Wednesday and get your reaction to what he had to say or more to the point didn't have to say. Did Mr. Page deny knowing people that you accuse him of having contact with? I don't remember. That's about all I recall. I don't remember. I don't remember learning anything additional about Steele's sources. Not that I recall, no. I don't remember Bruce or okay. ever giving okay. me. You're, I don't recall that. So do you recall? I do not. Do you recall? I do not. I don't remember any discussion. I don't remember using that word, but I don't remember using that word. I don't remember ever being informed. I don't recall being informed of that. Did you ask any questions or do any due diligence on this at all? I don't remember anything about the, the facts that have been revealed recently about the subsource. I don't remember the exact words, but something similar. You, that doesn't, that doesn't, doesn't, ring, that doesn't ring bells with me. Okay. Well, that's a pretty stunning thing. It didn't ring a bell. Which I'm sure you remember. I don't remember the exact words. I don't remember the, whether I knew the Democratic Party. I, I don't know for sure. I don't know. 
I don't think I knew before. I remember reading the footnote. I don't know whether I asked. I don't know what that refers to. As I said earlier, that does not ring any bells with me when I read that. I don't remember it. I don't I don't remember receiving anything that's described in that letter. You know, uh, Mr. Comey, I call that selective memory. I didn't read Jim Comey's book, uh, Jim Carafano, but was it just 200 blank pages? Because he doesn't remember anything about the investigation he oversaw. Well, I mean, clearly the testimony was the right one from a legal perspective. I mean, if you're actually concerned about being sucked into a legal maelstrom from the ongoing investigation, either indicted yourself or people around you indicted, you don't want to put anything on the record that could be turned against you later. And it's better, I mean, from a PR standpoint, it's better to say I don't remember than I refuse to say on the grounds that it might incriminate myself. So I understand it from a legal perspective. What was interesting to be listening to the testimony was how looking backward, he was very circumspect and very restrained. But looking forward, when they asked him questions about, well, do you worry about this and everything else in the administration, he, he was pretty vocal and very confident. So here's a guy who no longer has access to any, any intelligence, and he's just a private citizen. But when the Democrats you know, asked all kinds of things should we be worried about with regard to the president, he was happy to say yes, which struck me as partisan. Yes. And it, it, right. And so it speaks to perhaps who he was as FBI director as well. And that's the troubling piece of it. And and one thing he did confirm, though, or restate under questioning is that he never authorized anybody to leak information, which is the opposite of what Andy McCabe has testified to. So one of them lied under oath. And one would think that uh, A.G. Barr would want to keep his commitment and Durham as well, essentially by extension, have this story told before November 3rd and uh, whatever head should roll, roll. Well, I mean, one thing that clearly came out as in the discussion about the Steele dossier, that it was completely specious. And, and even Comey, in retrospect, uh, acknowledged that they should not have sought Pfizer warrants based on that. But it was interesting because what his defense was, well, I didn't pay much attention to that. Well, shame on you um, because you are kind of in charge. But, but that, that was not a big deal. It was not a big part of the investigation, which is like we screwed up. We didn't follow the book, which supposedly we followed. We massively destroyed people's reputation. We created a massive national scandal. But since it wasn't really a big part of the investigation, the fact that we did that's not a big deal. I I, I don't understand that analysis. Um, I don't get that. So there was, I think, a lot to me quite troubling, actually, from somebody who um, was was supportive of of the FBI director who was in. I mean, this is and, and here's the thing that gets me. Um, People say, oh, the FBI, you know, tear it up, throw it away, and everything else. When you, the one thing that we have for a fact when you go over this again and again and again is these were leadership screw-ups. I mean, if you look, for example, at Crossfire Hurricane, at how, the, how that investigation was actually run, people moved in and out, nobody kept track, nobody was... So here's one of the most politically sensitive investigations in, in the FBI's history, and the and the management of it was completely slipshod. Now, that's not the agent's fault, because they don't reassign themselves, and they don't make sure that you know, people aren't briefed and stuff, but, but this, was a, this was a clear leadership fault. And, and you know, it's, it's funny to see you know, Comey kind of espouse about the importance of leadership and essentially not take responsibility, because all the bad things that really happened in the FBI could have been averted if proper management had been in place and they'd actually followed the protocols that they actually established. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you.
listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I've run a lot of campaigns, so I, I know about polling. I, I understand the importance, the value of polling. I also understand when a poll is without value. And uh, that is one of these surveys that is being bandied about this morning, as it was over the weekend, the Wall Street Journal NBC poll, which finds Biden leading Trump in a national election. First of all, it's not a national election. It's a state-by-state state election, as we want to remind people. So these national numbers mean very little. 53-39 is the blaring headline that Biden has opened up a 14-point lead compared with an 8-point advantage St. Paul last month. Uh, the survey is uh, infirm on two scores. One, the national election doesn't matter. I think the real clear politics average in swing states, which is where the, the election will be decided, is within the margin of error. The uh, other problem with this survey is it's registered voters. The only way you get anything accurate from a poll, particularly uh, even though it's a snapshot in time, is if you're modeling the expected election day turnout properly. How can you be modeling it properly when, what was the turnout of registered voters in 2016, 60%? What was it in 2012, about the same? It's not registered voters. You have to pre-qualify your uh, polling universe by zeroing in on people who are likely to vote. I mean, this just has a wild margin of error in addition to the fact that the national top line number doesn't matter. What matters is what's happening in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Iowa and Minnesota and North Carolina and Arizona and Florida and so forth. So I, I just to share with your friends was people run around saying it's over. The ironic thing about this poll is it's actually good news for Trump because it's with the fervent support he has among his voters. It's more likely to depress Biden turnout than it is Trump turnout. In other words, oh, this race is over. Biden's up 14 points. I don't need to go out and vote. You know, people listening to this show, you know, vote religiously out of civic duty. That is not the case with everybody in the country. I think people have a, a wild misunderstanding about how committed a lot of Americans are to voting. They'll vote if they're really motivated to vote. And if they're not so motivated to vote because they don't like the two candidates, because there's other things going on in their life, they're happy to not vote and it not make an impact on their life. So, you know, this is why intensity matters and enthusiasm matters. And when you see people shut down Fifth Avenue, as a tribute to President Trump during his convalescence with COVID-19 has happened in New York over the weekend. That says something about the intensity in addition to those who were lining the streets outside Walter Reed. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Katrina Pearson. She is a senior advisor for the Trump campaign. Katrina, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So um, let's start with uh, what the campaign is doing. It's not just, of course, uh, President Trump and and the First Lady, but it's also uh, senior staff in the White House like Hope Hicks, senior staff on the campaign like campaign manager Bill Steppen. So how is uh, the campaign uh, adjusting so that it can be at full operation between now and whenever people recover? Yeah, thank you for the question. It's a great one, uh, considering that this is the Trump campaign. So nothing really stops 
the Trump campaign. We are continuing on with events. The vice president will be holding rallies in the president's place. Bill Stephan will be working from home. Um, those who have been infected will be quarantined, and the rest of us will be back out on the trail. There'll be one starting in Pennsylvania this week with Laura Trump and some others. And, um, you know, it took us about 24 hours to, to transition just to make sure everyone was okay before they were deployed. And um, we're going to move full speed ahead. Has anybody other than President Trump been hospitalized to date? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit of the politics. Uh, Axios reporting, um, you know, a, an anonymous Republican operative, of course. The bottom is falling out everywhere, said this a GOP operative, privy to data from swing states, according to Axios, uh, saying the combination of the debate performance plus, uh, as Axios describes it, a mask-disdaining president gets coronavirus on the eve of an election uh, things look dire for Republicans right now, not just at the presidential level, but also in the Senate, uh, suggests this Axios report citing an unnamed Republican insider. What's uh, wh- wh- where would how do you respond to that? Where do you say things are both with the president as well as with uh, the congressional races? Yeah, I think that it's an interesting coincidence. 30 days out from our election, um, the president um, has definitely uh, continued to work. He's been putting out the videos uh, because he, as he always does, he wants to communicate directly to the people. Um, he is very strong. You can hear it in his voice. He's up walking around. Um, and with regards to the swing states, you know, we just don't buy it. You know, this is just a different version of 2016 where they have the the manipulative polls and uh, the negative commentary, and it's just simply not going to work. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people um, who continue to support this president at these little events with surrogates, not even a main principal, but the bus tour comes to their town. They show up to show their support for the president. The excitement and the enthusiasm is unlike we've seen, even including 2016. Now we have the boat parades and all of the flotilla. So I just don't buy the commentary because it's one of those things that you see something on TV or you hear something in the news, but then you go out into the real world and you experience something completely different. And that's what we experience on the campaign trail. And is the campaign still committed to and expecting those next two debates, October 15th and the 22nd, to happen? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. You know, the American people have the right to hear unfiltered from both candidates to make their case. Absolutely. What can we expect from uh, the vice president on Wednesday evening's debate? What's the approach against Kamala Harris? You know, I'm really excited about the vice presidential debate because he has an opponent, um, including Joe Biden, with his 47 record year uh, failure. But he also has Kamala Harris, who really doesn't add much to the vice presidential ticket. Vice president has a phenomenal record to go from. The accomplishments of the administration are second to none. And really, he could talk about all of the damage that has been undone by the Trump administration. The Democrat policies have been utter failures across the board, and and the vice president can make the case. She is Katrina Pearson, senior advisor for the Trump campaign. Katrina, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Listening 
to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Well, it was the season premiere of Saturday Night Live, and it's still not funny. It's one of those shows I watch so you don't have to. No, like Meet the Press. Saturday Night Live uh, with uh, Jim Carrey offering his uh, Joe Biden impersonation, Alec Baldwin as Trump. Of course, for the uh, cold open, they did a send-up, or what they attempted to make as a send-up of the first debate. You know, it's not funny because they're moralizing. They're not parodying. Not really. Uh, Here was uh, Joe Biden's closing argument to uh, the nation. You can trust me because I believe in science and karma. Now, just imagine if science and karma could somehow team up (laughs) to send us all a message about how dangerous this virus can be. I'm not saying I want it to happen. Just imagine if it did. (laughs) That was the uh, storyline. That's not a parody. That's just, uh, well, it's more of a documentary. Washington Post headline, Trump Trump seemed to defy the laws of science and disease. Then the coronavirus caught up with him. Is that what happened? Seven and a half million people have been infected, including uh, group infections, sports teams this week, the Tennessee Titans. Did uh, science and karma catch up to the Tennessee Titans or the St. Louis Cardinals when they had an outbreak or the Florida Marlins or in the military ranks where people work in close quarters as a matter of course? So far, uh, this is from the DOD website, 46,000 cases, military cases, 621 hospitalized, eight dead. So uh, about one tenth. Well, actually, one one hundredth of a percent of the cases resulted in hospitalization. About one ten thousandth of the cases in the military resulted in deaths. So is this a a lack of seriousness or is it a president of the United States who is on the campaign trail, interacts with uh, people uh, in the White House, in briefings, in events and so on and so forth and doesn't want to live his life in a bubble? He wants to live his life and also do his duty as president of the United States to the best of his ability. I mean, this whole karma and science meet, as you heard Dr. Klein speak to earlier in the program, is uh, both ghoulish and untrue, untrue. The, the idea that people believe somebody can control the spread of the virus, somebody because of their title can control the spread of the virus. These are the same people like a uh, former national spokesman for the Clinton Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign, Zara Rahim, who tweeted this weekend. It's been against my moral identity to tweet this for the past four years, but I hope he Trump dies. I hope he dies. It's in moments like these where the sheer callowness of leftists is revealed, whether they're former Clinton operatives or goofball actors on Saturday Night Live. All their high minded talk of saving lives, promoting tolerance and the like. That is all set aside when the opportunity for a good temper tantrum presents itself. And it ain't funny. It's just ugly. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, again, follow us at danproffshow.com, podcast, and other value-added content on social media at Dan Prof Show. And uh, this story didn't get a lot of attention over the weekend because of everything that's going on COVID-related, specifically, of course, the president's infection and his health condition. But it is indicative that uh, despite a relatively peaceful weekend around the country, at least in terms of race-oriented protesting and violence with, you know, the exceptions of Seattle and Portland that have been completely given over to the mob. This uh, event in Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, the NFAC, which has also been present uh, in Louisville protesting uh, the death of Breonna Taylor. The NFAC is the not effing around coalition. And uh, it interesting uh, Louisiana is an open carry state. What you had on Saturday in Lafayette, Louisiana, to protest the police-involved shooting of Trayford Pellerin, a 31-year-old black man fatally shot by police in August, we've spoke about in this show, the particulars of the case. Uh, they, uh, You had 400 black men and women uh, in black garb with uh, what Nancy Pelosi would call assault rifles. Fine by me. It was largely peaceful. Uh, there was like, apparently an accidental discharge of a weapon, so one person was arrested. But otherwise, it was peaceful in orientation, so fine. I just wonder how that the press would have reported it had it been, say, anti-lockdown protesters in Lansing, Michigan, or white people doing the same thing under the color of law and how that would have been reported and, and perceived. But nonetheless, the uh, head of uh, this NFAC, this Not Effing Around Coalition, is a guy who calls himself Grandmaster Jay. And here's what he had to say to those in attendance. Newsflash America, that includes black people too. Not sometimes, not maybe, perhaps, not depending on which one we decide to exercise, not depending on how you was raised, not depending on the fact that you still think of us as property, not depending on any of that. It's either all of us or none of us. It's all the rights or none of the rights. It's either peace and equal justice for everybody or there's nothing but war and calamity for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm all for peace and equal justice under the law for everybody. Uh, but I guess the real question is that what triggers war for everybody? And uh, what does that exactly look like? Uh, for more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Ken Masugi, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, teacher of political science at Johns Hopkins University, former special assistant to Clarence Thomas, uh, profiled nicely in the uh, recent Clarence Thomas documentary, which was great, my grandfather's son. Uh, Ken, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, what, how do you receive the comments from Grandmaster Jay of this uh, NFAC organization and in the context of the urban unrest that has punctuated our summer? Well, again, it's another example of the sort of rhetoric that unfortunately arises when you get these moralistic and often specious arguments on behalf of anti-racism. 
anti-racism sounds like a very good thing, a, a, really a moral necessity. But when you look at it, it becomes a justification for bullying on the other side, and even worse than bullying. You uh, call uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris racial fanatics. You say that uh, Biden is the most extreme demagogue on race who's ever run for president since Woodrow Wilson. I mean, that's a statement. Uh, why do you say that? Based on a whole series of statements he's made, notoriously this uh, comment about uh, if you ain't black, uh, you ain't black if you vote Republican, and uh, other things he said during his previous national campaigns. But most recently, what he said, he's going to push ahead with his racial reforms, which he never uh, really elaborates on, quote, if the country is ready or not, it doesn't matter. And actually, what Biden is reflecting is a whole tradition of the Democratic Party demagoguing on race. Uh, it goes back to FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, and Harry Truman. For Truman, it was, if the country, he said this in his State of the Union address in 1944, that if the country were to turn to conservative Republicans, like Calvin Coolidge, of all people, it would be as though we never confronted and defeated the fascists. Now, this is in 1944. And Harry Truman claimed that the uh, Republicans represented a conspiracy against the rights of Jews and Catholics and blacks. And, of course, this is nonsense. I mean, Eisenhower proved it with his civil rights initiatives and so on. And uh, we've had a bipartisan consensus on civil rights. Uh, you could even point to Trump's arguments on behalf of civil rights. Uh, uh, no other Republican could have uh, done the, the, the criminal justice reforms that Trump came forward with. In the debate, too, is this point that's been talked about uh, a lot, uh, Chris Wallace, starting from the premise of the left and calling uh, Trump's executive order uh, banning uh, anti-racist uh, consultants and, and training programs at fed the federal employees, anti-racist in the Ibram Kendi sense of that word, because he said, I ended it because it's racist. People were teaching uh, uh, people to hate this country. Joe Biden said nobody's doing that. Um, yeah. and, and in point of fact, um, uh, the president uh, was lost in the, the the melee of that debate. But in, in point of fact, the president is right, isn't he, that, uh, that this these seminars are to teach people to hate America and, and categorize people as oppressors or victims just solely based on skin color. Right. And uh, these are not just abstract training programs. Uh, they really intend to put force people, force guilty white people uh, and I guess all white people should be guilty or non-blacks to, to be even more universal to actually confront other uh, non-blacks on their inherent racism, their, their white privilege or what other privilege they supposedly have. Uh, in other words, uh, the, the, this anti-racist training is ultimately about producing a, a kind of hateful activism uh, in, in uh, people who are otherwise uh, not a problem and maybe even outstanding people uh, with regard not only to race but to, to other issues as well. Is it fair to say that uh, these sort of the philosophical 
leaders behind this anti-racist movement like this uh, Ibram Kendi, whose real name is Henry Rogers, but oh, okay, Ibram Kendi, uh, Robin DiAngelo, uh, the, uh, uh, the squad in the House, for example. The real uh, play here is to establish a new racial order. It's to establish your power and your access to particular benefits based on your race. That's just a new racial order. Yes, that, exactly right. Shelby Steele uh, uh, put his finger on it many years ago when he called out white guilt as the the uh, ethos that uh, racial minorities are uh, often uh, uh, play upon. Uh, and it's not as though uh, uh, there hasn't been a great deal of injustice. Uh, that's, uh, that's certainly the case. Uh, but... Uh, I think it requires a certain type of logic to confront it properly. I think you see that in Abraham Lincoln when he argued against slavery. He didn't do it on account of uh, racial issues, but simple justice. Uh, Slavery, uh, Lincoln said, was you work, I eat. And everyone recognizes immediately the injustice of you work, someone else working, I eat, I get all the benefits. Uh, and th- th- there's, n- there's no race involved here. And you would think uh, that uh, people would be similarly attuned to this idea that you're white, you're an oppressor, you're black, you're a victim. Uh, there's a whole bunch of white people and a whole bunch of black people that, that don't want to be labeled, don't deserve to be labeled uh, in either direction. Right, that's exactly right. Neither a victim nor an oppressor be. Uh, right. Don't be a slave owner. Don't be a slave. Uh, and uh, I think that's something everyone can agree upon. Um, and we can uh, uh, I, I think actually Trump uh, sees the world in that in that view. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, Biden and the people around Biden who want to bail out rioters, for example, uh, and want ultimately a government policies that do the same thing are, are really going to uh, aggravate this issue. He is Ken Masugi, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, teacher of political science at Johns Hopkins, former special assistant to Clarence Thomas. Ken, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Would you rescue me? Would you get my back? Would you take my call when I start to crack? Would you rescue me? Uh-huh. Would you rescue me? Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm going to build on uh, something, uh, on what we were talking with Ken Masugi about, um, not focused so much on the uh, anti-racist, the Ibram Kendis and the Black Lives Matter, but uh, strategic ally of those Marxists and the Marxist organizations. And that's Antifa. Uh, Antifa's profile got raised again last week, as you recall, in the presidential debate. This is a left-wing white supremacist. Antifa's an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not malicious. That's what his FBI... His okay. FBI director Gentlemen, said. Well, then, gonna, you know what? No, no, no we're, done, we're done, sir. Everybody, we're moving on to the next. And uh, by the way, uh, we discussed this last week. That is a complete bastardization and misinterpretation of what FBI Director Christopher Ray said. We went through that chapter and verse calling 
he called it. He was a little bit obtuse, more obtuse than he needed to be, more obtuse than A.G. Barr has been on the topic. But he talked about it being a movement when he said it's an idea. It's an ideologically driven movement. They're anarchists. That doesn't mean it's a figment of people's imagination, which is what Joe Biden attempted to convey. Maybe it's a figment of his imagination and Jerry Nadler's imagination, but it's very real. And uh, I reminded people of the Project Veritas undercover work back in June of this year with respect to Antifa in Portland. And I want to go back to that in addition to fast forwarding and this interview in Reason magazine of Aaron Smith a conservative trans woman in San Francisco, San Francisco, uh, who uh, went undercover with Antifa in Portland to um, get uh, the skinny on how the organization operates, even though it's a figment of Joe Biden's imagination. But first, remember what Project Veritas and their undercover undercover reporters were able to gather about Antifa some of the statements that were made to undercover reporters. This is Rose City Antifa. This is base camp in Portland. Don't be that f***ing guy with the goddamn spiked brass knuckles getting photos taken of you. Police are going to be like, perfect, we can prosecute these f***ers. Look how violent they are. Right? Not that we're not, but we need to uh, Yeah, avoid photos being taken of you. Avoid getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar, as it were, meaning your hand w- with brass knuckles on it after you just struck somebody. If you just beat Andy No nearly to death, for example, more. How violent is Antifa or RCA in particular? Practice things like an eye gouge. It takes very little uh, pressure to injure someone's eyes. They do not hesitate to either push back or incite some kind of violence. In our classes and in our meetings, before we do uh, any sort of demonstration or black block, you know, we talk about weapons detail and what we carry and what we should have. What is black block? Well, this is black block right now. The term is used to uh, a tactic in which individuals conceal their identity to look uniform so, so that no one can be identified in an act of a crime. With RCA, it seems much more structured, almost like a company or like a business. So, An organization, you know, maybe? I feel like there is some type of outside funding influence or resources being used. Consider, like, destroying your enemy, not, like, delivering a really awesome right hand, right eye, left eye blow, you know? Um, it's not boxing. It's not kickboxing. It's like destroying your enemy. It's like destroying your enemy, figment of uh, Joe Biden's imagination and allegedly ours. It's not. Aaron Smith was at a GOP election watch party at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco on November 8th of 2016. The one time deputy vice chair of communications for the city's Republican Party, San Francisco, uh, should have been a time of jubilation. As soon as they announced Trump the presumptive winner, we're told, hey, there's a mob of protesters out front, says Smith, who stepped outside to find the San Francisco cops being pushed back. By a crowd, some in head to toe black, closed helmets, face masks. A trans woman, conservative, former tugboat captain, who says she, I'll call her she for the purposes of recounting how uh, Aaron Smith is described in this article. Uh, she's a weird activist analyst type person right now. She became uh, galvanized to find out more about a group that dressed as revolutionaries and took their fight to the streets. She want, uh, Aaron Smith wanted to know what was animating them. Was it just Trump animus, romance of revolution, boredom and frustration of COVID sequestration? So she, uh, Aaron Smith, embedded herself. What uh, Aaron Smith experienced has not been peaceful, she recounts to reason. She's had friends beaten up by Antifa. She's been threatened herself and made her curious. 
So she decided to find out more by going undercover with the black block anarchists you just heard described in that Project Veritas Underground. That's those are that's real terminology. Uh, undercover, I should say, underground and undercover. Smith went, uh, this Reason uh, reporter who memorialized this, went out with Smith several nights. Uh, I could not follow her directly. Black Block avoids having those outside its ranks interview or photograph them, just as you heard in the Veritas undercover. I was able to watch her wearing all black, carrying a shield, bearing an anarchist A, slip into the group. I saw that she was present at the same locations where Black Block attacked buildings and set fires, including the Portland Police Association. Uh, In the interview... Smith says, I had a vague idea of what Antifa was, but it wasn't nearly as big a deal as it is now outside of maybe Berkeley or Seattle. I had friends that got attacked at a Trump rally they tried to hold in San Jose in April of 16. I had a year of watching that happen. And basically, I don't like bullies. So I started showing up at these things at rallies and protests in places where my friends were getting beaten up. I felt like in 2016, everything really changed in the Bay Area. It stopped being so carefree. In a sense, everything started kind of feeling like it was for keeps. The first rally Uh, Aaron Smith attended in Berkeley, April of 2017, Trump MAGA rally. I started live streaming in June and it got I got to be pretty good at talking to people from the other side. The first time I ever actually dressed in black and put on a mask and tried to slip into the black block was more recently. It's a little scary because I faced them down so much. I'm like, I'm going to dress in black and slip in. Uh, And uh, that's what Aaron Smith did. And uh, to the question of how organized they are, this uh, idea, a lot of detail Smith gives. There are different types of block organizations. The building block of Antifa is what's called an affinity group. People you live and work with and trust and know in real life. All the planning is done within that closed block, and they don't let everyone know what they're going to do. I didn't know that they were going to burn the Portland Police Association when I joined. What they did was put a call out that said, anyone show up in black that night at this place and you can join the action. That's a quote. They called That's called a semi-open block. The planning is done within the closed group, but anyone who's dressed in black can just come and join in the action. If you know what you're looking for, you can spot affinity groups that are working together. One thing they'll do sometimes is have written agreements with other protest organizations that aren't in black block. I know of one from Berkeley that illustrates this. We agree not to take pictures of anyone in Antifa, for example. It will uh, say that literally in writing, so everyone's working together. It's like a combined arms type thing, almost like the military. They work together and are mutually reinforcing. And so Aaron Smith describes what happened the night that uh, the police, the Portland Police Association was burned. That's sort of spontaneous order, but not so spontaneous, some planning. And she also goes into how they, as you heard in the Project Veritas undercover, how they want to destroy their opponents, but not get caught doing so. How they try to bait the police into overreacting so they can tell the story of uh, the police are thugs. They need to be. They're jackbooted, you know, uh, fascists, and they need to be defunded. This is what they're really trying to do, right, Aaron Smith. Their objective is um, is to uh, delegitimize the police for the purposes of eliminating it. Aaron Smith uh, says in the interview, it's basically guerrilla warfare. They're trying to undermine the legitimacy of the state, and the police right now are sort of a bulwark between themselves and, well, between the law-abiding and Antifa, but also between Antifa and undermining the state itself. And this is all a figment of our imagination, says Joe Biden. I think not. This is Dan Proft.
at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And I have to give the D.C. Press Corps credit. They are consistent in their misreporting of COVID-19 cases with the news this morning that White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany tested positive for the coronavirus. It's just the fact that she tested positive. There's very little context given unless you dig a little bit, uh, which is to say uh, that she is asymptomatic, at least according to her statement about her positive test. That's number one. But again, the uh, level of illness doesn't matter. All that matters is cases, and they're all treated as death sentences by the D.C. press corps. The only difference when it comes to Trump world, President Trump and his campaign, his campaign staffers or White House staffers as well, is that uh, somehow they deserve it. They did something wrong. They're reckless. And that's how they get infected, because they could have controlled the virus, whereas the other seven and a half million people in America who've been infected, including many people who live or work in close quarters, they're not responsible. It is um, the continued uh, degradation of anything resembling intelligent discourse on the topic, I'm afraid. This was a part of the discussion prior to the announcement of these infections in the halls of power that we had on this show last week with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital and uh, epidemiologist himself, uh, Dr. Ellen, on you know cases versus the nature of the cases. Cases by themselves don't make me um, are not what I'm so anxious about. It is the spread of those cases to vulnerable populations who have a very high likelihood of dying. And if you can continually sort of reduce that risk of transmission outside that, then then a lot of these venues, these congregate congregation settings, become less risky to the general population. And if you're talking about people either making a personal choice to say, uh, you know, or young kids going to you know, K through 12 or even college students who um, by themselves are, you know, despite whatever we hear in the media, are relatively low risk for getting very sick and dying. Um, you really all of a sudden have a whole a whole uh, a tool bag or a toolkit that allows you to strategize a way to reopen and normal start to normalize things because. As I also have written, and everyone else says as well, is we've got to figure out how to live with this virus for a while. We, it's not going to be perfect, but we can't live in, you know, you and I have only talked about this for six months now. Right. We can't live in the shutdown state. So now what are the compromises you're going to make and where are they realistic? And this test and having it distributed so widely will give us some tools to be able to strategically start to live with the virus in a way where we reduce hospitalization and death while allowing there to be periodic flips as we go along. And, of course, we were talking about the the rapid test developed by Abbott uh, last week at the time. That was the context. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always good to be with you, Dan. Um, did uh, you heard uh, Dr. Ellen's remarks and, and others uh, in the space have said similar, including uh, Martin Kaldorf and now Dr. Scott Atlas, a member of the uh, te- the uh, Trump COVID task force? Uh, are, are they right about that? The need to learn to live with the virus, uh, but not in a bubble. Yeah, you know the whole situation with uh, transmission of uh, any infectious agent, but particularly the 
SARS-CoV-2 virus is probabilities. You need to reduce the probability of transmission and thereby of, of contracting uh, serious disease. And so you can, you can live in a bubble, you can shelter in your bedroom and have all your meals passed through a slot and essentially reduce the probability to zero, but that's not viable. On the other hand, very high-risk activities like uh, attending uh, political rallies in a closed room with people not wearing masks or attending uh, a crowded protest uh, in the streets uh, yelling and screaming and, and cheek by jowl uh, or uh, dining and uh, going to a bar that's crowded and hot and without good ventilation are high-risk activities and are a bad idea. So you, you have to find some intermediate path, intermediate strategy. And the pillars of prevention uh, we've known for some time are wearing masks, social distancing, avoidance of crowds, especially in indoor poorly ventilated spaces, and frequent hand washing. And we have the ability to choose among uh, these various strategies, and some uh, have not chosen well both individually and institutionally. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to pick up uh, that discussion a bit and then uh, fold in the prospect of a vaccine. We're still uh, guardedly optimistic, at least we're told to be guard- guardedly optimistic but from a lot of quarters about the ultimate development of a vaccine. It may not be on everybody's preferred timeline, which is tomorrow, but I uh, want to get to Dr. Miller's take on where we are with the uh, vaccine. More with Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow, at the Pacific Research Institute right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, and he was the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. And before uh, we turn to a discussion of vaccines, uh, a couple of things. One, just on the, the, the matter of uh, masks and stopping the spread, you know, the, the suggestion from a lot of quarters, including uh, Dr. Roger Klein, for, uh, former head of molecular oncology at Cleveland Clinic, is that we're not going to stop the spread. Masks aren't going to stop the spread. There's no really real science behind that uh, contention. And so it's ultimately going to be a combination of people getting infected and a vaccine that gets us to herd immunity. Is that inaccurate? Well, I, I think uh, herd immunity appears to be an, an aspirational goal, uh, but uh, it, it's, it doesn't seem to be in the cards for this uh, currently. Um, the uh, the percentage of, of people in the population uh, who have been infected, uh, in the, g- given that it varies in different parts of the country, uh, is maybe 10 percent. Uh, and um, the vaccines uh, have, have limitations of two kinds. One is that no vaccine is 100 percent effective. And uh, FDA has set the bar at 50 percent efficacy for it to be approved. Uh, the other factor that's critical is the uptake by the population. And uh, upwards of 50% of Americans at this point say that they won't opt to take the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so if you have, a say, an 80% uh, effective vaccine uh, 
but only half of the population take it. That's 80% times 50%. That gives you a 40% uh, immunity in the population from the vaccine, and that's just not enough for genuine herd immunity. It'll help, to be sure. And uh, I'm one of the, the great boosters of vaccine development and of the White House's Operation Warp Speed, which was uh, a brilliant exercise in getting the vaccine available more rapidly, much more rapidly than it would have been otherwise. But uh, the vaccine's not going to be a panacea. We're going to need, uh, as your quote earlier said, uh, to learn to live with this in some sort of modus vivendi that's acceptable to individuals and to the, the, the nation at large. Just on the threshold of efficacy, uh, it, uh, I, 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 if I'm remembering correctly, I think the CEO of Pfizer said they would apply for FDA approval for their vaccine and development if it proves out by, and they should know by the end of October, that it's effective 70% of the time. Is that, uh, is that an appropriate threshold to uh, bring to the table for FDA approval, uh, even though it, it's ostensibly higher than the, the threshold that the FDA is setting? Well, sure. Seventy uh, percent is a lot better uh, than than fifty percent. And it's interesting that the uh, vaccine developing companies have been extremely responsible uh, in this regard. They they put out an unprecedented statement that said uh, that they wouldn't push for uh, premature uh, approval until they were absolutely certain of uh, adequate safety and efficacy of the, of their vaccines. Seventy percent would be. Uh, an, an excellent vaccine, 50% would be okay, but still acceptable for uh, preventing a disease that doesn't have a cure or another means of prevention. Just going back to the herd immunity issue and, and the amount of the, the percentage of the population that's been infected, this is this is a sort of an argument, but it wasn't an argument between uh, in, in, in a siloed fashion between Fauci, between Atlas, and then others jumped in too on this notion of cross-reactive immunity and that it may be a, a significantly larger percentage of population that has some level of cross-reactive immunity to the virus than is otherwise borne out by the antibody testing that's been done to date. And Fauci didn't like Scott Atlas criticizing Dr. Redfield in public or disagreeing with him in public, but he really didn't dispute the fact that that could be true. And so I just wonder if if maybe we don't really have a handle on the, the percentage of, of uh, Americans who have been infected. Well, we, we don't know that. Uh, it, it, we don't know whether the virus is aware of that speculation or not. Uh, there, there's a lot unknown here. You know, we've described this as being in the fog of war, mm-hmm. especially in the spring. And uh, in many ways, we're still there. Uh, some of those data should come out of these very large vaccine trials, because we'll see uh, in the placebo group uh, how many infections there are. The placebo group being the untreated uh, subjects being compared to the vaccine treated. So we'll see what the incidence is uh, of them and get some idea of how uh, easy it is, how frequent it is to be infected when you're not protected by a vaccine. Uh, As you watched, uh, and I mean, this is a little bit beyond their their scope, uh, but uh, Trump's medical team and uh, all the attendant coverage of President Trump testing positive for COVID over the last, uh, you know, 72 hours, basically. It, it seems to me the hope should be that uh, 
President Trump and and uh, everybody else infected uh, with that's high profile. I mean, everybody infected generally, but for this limited purpose, everybody high profile associated with the Trump campaign survives. And I would and, and, and without too much incident, and I would say the same if it was Biden and his team, because, number one, they're human beings. So you want people to survive. But number two um, is that maybe it will disabuse some people of irrational fears, of overreactions, trying to achieve this balance we were talking about when you see a 74-year-old guy who's, you know, not exactly Jack LaLanne, uh, able to get through to the other side of an infection without too much incidence? The probabilities here are, uh, are, are striking, but they're only probabilities. Uh, you know, at, at, at age 74, uh, the president has a, uh, a three- times higher in, uh, likelihood of being hospitalized with uh, COVID-19 infection mm-hmm. and uh, about a five times greater uh, probability than someone uh, in his 20s of, of dying from it. So it's all probabilities, and, and a lot of the outcomes are factors that we don't understand. By the way, you mentioned uh, his being at, the, at Walter Reed. There's an interesting tidbit here. Uh, the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, is directly across the street from Walter Reed, uh, and that's where Tony Fauci's office is. And yet he hasn't been in evidence at all uh, in the uh, president's care team. Uh, I, I worked at NIH, so I know the area hmm. very well. Hmm. Uh, interesting. He is Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. He was the founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. That's always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm going to uh, wax philosophical for a moment here to close uh, Monday's program with a little help from uh, Rabbi Sh- uh, Shimuel Klatskin, who writes over at The Spectator. Uh, cardinal George, uh, the great uh, cardinal of the Chicago Archdiocese, Archbishop and Cardinal of the Chicago Archdiocese, preceded uh, Cardinal Blaise Supich, current cardinal, said, we live in a time, before his passing, said, we live in a time where everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. Good observations to think about. Forget the everything is permitted piece for a moment. Let's focus on the nothing is forgiven. The uh, idea of redemption in these times, and it's difficult given, geez, everything we've just talked about in the last three hours on this program from uh, Antifa and uh, the uh, race identitarians to uh, the hatred being spewed and the, and the death wishes for President Trump and other members of the Trump campaign who've been infected by COVID. Rabbi Klatskin says um, the idea of redemption shouldn't be confined to our houses of worship. We must infuse our politics with the courage to work for a real victory, a victory that results in peace, not just for the war. It's not an impossible dream. American history has its moments of political redemption. They're worth contemplating. This is a good one. I had forgotten about this. General Ulysses S. Grant, December of 1862. He had been embarrassed by uh, Confederate raids in Kentucky that captured many prisoners destroyed uh, Union infrastructure. War was not going well for the Union, 
at that point, and Grant was under pressure to perform or face dismissal. He uh, issued a, a sweeping order that uh, went after Jewish people, quoting from uh, Rabbi the order and Rabbi, Slutsk, uh, Rabbi uh, Klatskin's piece here in spectator.org. The Jews, as a class, violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department and also Department orders, are hereby expelled from the department within 24 hours from the receipt of this order. This order was duly enforced, most notably in the Jewish community of Paducah, Kentucky, but binding throughout Grant's Department of the Tennessee, which extended from Mississippi to far southern Illinois and from the Mississippi River to the Tennessee. Jews were told to pack up what they could carry and leaving homes and businesses behind, get out of the entire department. Well, one uh, union supporter, Jewish businessman from Paducah, petitioned Abraham Lincoln directly. Lincoln received him and Lincoln reversed Grant's order. When uh, Grant, subsequent to the victory in the Civil War, was running for president, he uh, demonstrated a change of heart over the time. And actually, uh, when he was elected, proved himself as having changed his heart by taking an active role in using America's diplomatic power to make an international stand against the persecution of Jews, uh, most notably in 1870 in Romania. What uh, Rabbi Klatskin concludes, just using that as one example, is that our political battles are real and the stakes unusually high in 2020. We must fight to win, but without the idea of return and of redemption, it's hard to imagine a victory that would be worth attaining. As we fight, let's realize that the peace we are fighting for lifts our cause. Real inspiration flows from a real vision. It inspires us in the long and hard battle, and it has the possibility to turn enemies into allies and friends. We can hold an open door before our fellows and see in them what might yet be. They will know the difference. This is a profound weapon in our battle for the good. General Grant would tell you so. And on that hopeful note, thank you for joining us for this Monday edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Proft Show.